Welcome back. Episode 65 of the Professor Penn Podcast. David Penn here. Starting out with something cool. And I think that in times such as these, where we're feeling this growing sense of anxiety, or at least I am, I don't want to say we, when I'm feeling, let me not take anything for granted. I am feeling an I statement. I guess when I make I statements, I'm living up to my own standards of performance. I statements. I statements. I am feeling a growing sense of anxiety as I am watching what's going on in the world. And I do not want to lose my cool under fire. Got smiles and cries. I have my smiles and cries, and I got my style. So I want to keep my cool. Free People Radio. Yes, please go to freepeopleradio.com. Freepeopleradio.com. That's the website of this station. And there you're going to find all kinds of uh, information about what we're doing. And you're going to find an opportunity to support these broadcasts. There are four different channels of you participating and, and promoting and, and supporting with your love and your resources, what we're doing here. And we got a big argument around the campfire here. How are we going to do this? Because it costs a lot of money to make this thing work. This, this is not a, a shoestring. And for those of my uh, critics who think we're trying to get rich, we just don't want to go bankrupt. We're asking for your support because we really don't want to sell advertising. We really don't want to. We would like this to be a movement-supported station. And if the people that are watching Free People Radio's content just give us a little bit of support, we're just here for you. We're here for the movement. I am here for the movement. I am part of starting this movement. I care about the American people. I care about human well-being. I'm doing this to pay back what I owe in my mission, in my life. That's what it's all about. Now, the Professor Penn podcast, we're jockeying things around for scheduling. You will have noticed we're on at 7.30 p.m. Central Time. 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Tuesdays and Thursday nights. We've changed our, our time. And we're doing this because we want to stack up content. We don't want to compete with ourselves. We come on just before the Please Call, call Me Crazy episodes. And we're asking you to come at 7.30 for Professor Penn and stay right on through the night. And our job is to inform. Our job is to encourage, to motivate to truth seek together, and let us remember we're doing this to be active in our communities. This is a process of empowerment. Target.com, another way to support the movement. Target.com, it's everything you need for tires. Uh, the company now is covering probably 70% of the population in the country. In other words, where you live. We are going to be up all the major brand tires at the lowest possible price with all the low-cost tires because inflation is hurting Professor Penn. So I know some people are, many people, I have to be looking at the money in my pocket because there's less all the time. So we're going to have the major brand tires made in the United States. We've got low-cost tires. And you can order those tires at the best possible price, and we will ship them 
to the installer, to the tire dealer of your choice, right by your house. No extra charge. We'll drop them off there. You go on to our digital calendar. You make an appointment, and you pay tire get $25 a wheel for a mount, a balance, a new valve stem, and disposal of your old tire, which is the market price. And when you meet your appointment time and you show up, your tires are waiting for you. The tires are paid for. The service is paid for. You go into the dealer. They put your tires on, you drive out the door, and you've supported this movement. You have to buy your tires from somebody. When you buy them from TireGet.com, you're supporting the movement. PrecinctStrategy.com. Dan Schultz. Dan Schultz is going to be joining us on Free People Radio. We're going to start to work with him here because he has a great motivating and unifying idea, which is about citizen participation in politics. Citizen participation in politics, self-governance, is what made America different than all the other countries that came before it. And what we've learned here as American citizens is that if we don't self-govern, if we turn our self-governance over to other people, they don't care about us. They're playing other games. Most of them are trying to get rich, which is its own kind of evil, greed. Some of them. They just hate the American people. They hate people generally. And they're in it to change the nature of this planet from a pro-human, pro-child environment to a new digitized world, which has nothing to do with me and nothing to do with the world I want to live in. So your self-governance is dependent on your participation. And we really appreciate Dan Schultz working with us. And we're going to do everything we can to spread his message. He's really an interesting guy. We're going to get him up on free people. And uh, in the meantime, go to precinctstrategy.com and check it out. It's good. Prayer. Prayer. In moments such as these, which for me seems like every moment since I've been about 26 years old, I can only rely on my faith in God. And I've built that bridge, that bridge of faith, throughout my entire adult life. If you're young, let's say you're 23 years old, Tanner. Yeah. Good morning to you. Good morning. You know, when you start building a bridge of faith when you're young, when you actually need it, the bridge is there. Unfortunately, most of us wait until we've jumped off the cliff and go, oh, where's the bridge? And that's a tough deal and a very painful deal. So I'm encouraging all of the viewers and listeners, regardless of your age, to join me. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will the people turn my glory into shame? How long will the people love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin when you are on your beds. Search your hearts and be silent. 
offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Many, Lord, are asking, Who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new new wine abound. In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 4. Love the Psalms. King David. Knew how to pray. Built his faith bridge. And when he got into a scrape, he knew he could rely on his Lord. And I just have to highlight this for the young people out there. Because this problem's been around for a long time. I'm going to read this one again. Please listen. Tremble and do not sin when you are on your beds. This needs no further explanation. No further explanation. So here we sit, watching what's going on in the Middle East. Ukraine's off the front page now. Isn't that convenient? It's not like they quit fighting in the Ukraine. Hey, they're fighting there. And now a second front's opened up in the Middle East. We're talking about the Eurasian World Island theory now of Mackinder, which is the Crown's theory of the case, right? The Crown's theory was whoever controls the World Island, which is Eurasia, controls the world. And whoever controls the heartland controls the World Island. The heartland is Ukraine. This is Mackinder's theory of geopolitics. This is an idea that was around before 1900, and we're still living underneath it. Our elites that run the U.S. government, educated at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, and Columbia, Rutgers, you know, these kind of people, they studied Mackinder. I don't know what Mackinder has to do with the United States of America, other than the fact that our elite institutions are really English and European in their sentiment. We got divorced from these people, and like a crazy ex-wife, we could not get England out of our grill. They're right in our grill. Again, England attacked Russia in 1805, 1852, 1918. The Germans jumped in there and took their turn. It was a tag team. And if you look at the history of England and Britain, uh, I'm excuse me, England and Germany, they're close in their leadership. Same people. Tag teamed it. The Germans attacked in 1942, Operation Barbarossa. Then we had the Cold War. And now we've got another war right on Russia's borders. And yet, we're told the Russians are expansionist. If they're so expansionist, why does every fight happen inside their borders or right on their borders? Come on. And now we've got a new deal going in the Middle East, which we want to delve into today. And I want to say this going into this uh, episode today, that for me, I am being forced to clarify my thinking in a way that I never anticipated that I would. In fact, as a personal anecdote, the first night I ever talked to Royce White, I talked on the telephone for two or three hours, he right off the bat challenged my presumptions about being Jewish and about Israel. And I was kind of overwhelmed with 
what he was saying to me because I, like most, if not, well, almost all American Jews, I live with a set of judgments about Israel and about Jewishness that was put into my head, particularly in my generation, because I'm born in the 50s. So I was given all this propaganda about Israel from the time I was very, very young. Very young. And it's time for me to go back. I am going back and reviewing what I believe and looking at my judgments. And when nothing moves, when everything's locked down and nothing moves, no light gets in, you can't get any new information in there when it's locked down, like a sarcophagus. But when this kind of butchery and savagery is let loose on the world and everybody is stunned and emotionally overcome, that movement, that emotional movement, allows light to shine in where it never shined in before. And I can feel things and see things and think things that I would have never been able to had this horrifying event of savagery not taken place. I am completely opposed to this kind of violence. And I will tell you, as an American Jew, I'm personally threatened by it. You know, I got people in the live chats that are very anti-Semitic. I try to talk to them. I'm not off put by them. And we're going to start to get into this today in the hopes that we can move beyond anti-Semitism and check out the real situation. Who are these people? Where did they come from? What do they have with, to do with Judaism? That's the subject of today's episode. And there's going to be people that think, I'm defending the uh, Hamas attacks. I am not. I am not. But when leader after leader gets up, the most leftist anti-war people like Bernie Sanders, and they start making statements that eliminate any examination of the history as if the history doesn't matter, like my favorite Republican, Mr. History Doesn't Matter. Of course history matters. Savagery and butchery do not negate the impact of history. They just create more crappy history that we, the people, are going to have to deal with. This is not a positive. But let us look back at the Nakba. The Nakba. ...have passed since the Nakba, the catastrophe in Arabic, took place in Palestine in 1948, in which more than 750,000 Palestinians were forcefully displaced from their homes and pushed into refugee camps in East Jerusalem, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and neighboring countries. But the Nakba didn't end in 1948. The catastrophe continues to affect more than 12 million Palestinians who remain stateless today. Historical Palestine was mostly made up of Palestinian Muslims, Christians, and a small number of Jews who generally lived together peacefully. The persecution of Jews across Europe led them to believe that they were not safe there. And Zionists saw Palestine as a prime location for a Jewish homeland. And it was clear that there were Palestinians on the land. Uh, Zionist leaders and common people alike were, got used to the idea that the only way of uh, making Palestine a Jewish state is by uh, causing the Palestinians to leave. The Jewish Zionist movement began organizing immigration and buying land in Palestine. This was the first step in turning Palestine into a Jewish homeland. Then World War I began. Britain promised Zionist support for a Jewish national home in Palestine. This came as a formal political letter 
known today as the Balfour Declaration. It also included that, nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. When World War I ended and the Ottoman Empire was defeated, Britain occupied Palestine. Britain provided the muscle um, under which they could simply emigrate. I mean, they couldn't have emigrated were it not for uh, the British presence. Um, because the, the, um, the crucial battle in the early stages was simply getting Jews into Palestine and acquiring land. They couldn't have done that without uh, British uh, government's um, sponsorship. Jewish migration into Palestine continued for decades, and the Palestinian people organized large demonstrations against this influence. Palestinians saw British support of Zionism as biased and unfair. So the people of Palestine revolted in 1936 to fight against British and Zionist occupation. During the three-year uprising, thousands of Palestinians were killed, and hundreds of British citizens and Jewish Zionists died as well. Britain dismantled the Palestinian Revolution, leaving them with no political or military leadership. However, the British also began limiting Jewish migration. This upset the Jews who had fought with the British during the uprising and led them to create their own forces. Zionist militias carried out bombing attacks against both the British and the Palestinians. As things got out of hand, the British announced in 1947 that they'd be ending their mandate on Palestine. The file on Palestine was then transferred to the UN, which suggested dividing Palestine into an Arab and Jewish state. As the British were preparing to leave, the new Jewish population began taking over, and it helped that they were heavily armed. The ethnic cleansing of Palestinians began months before the British officially left Palestine. Zionists were taking over major cities and hundreds of villages, forcing thousands of Palestinians into neighboring countries. It happened many times that the Israeli, very holy uh, 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 soldiers, took 10 of the youngsters in the middle of the village, shot them just in order to kill them, in order that all the others will see it and run away. And if it's not enough, they took others also. The British ended their mandate on May 14, 1948, leaving their tanks and armored weapons to the newly created State of Israel. From the time the British occupied Palestine in 1917 to when they left in 1948, the number of Jews is estimated to have multiplied 10 times to half a million. As Zionist Jews declared the State of Israel on May 14, 1948, the surrounding Arab nations declared war with the objective of liberating Palestine. Although Palestine had the support of other Arab nations and they outnumbered the Jewish population, the Israelis also had foreign military, political, and financial support. They were highly prepared, uh, highly dedicated, well-armed, um, fighting force, which was superior to all the Arab armies Israel grew beyond the UN partition lines during the Arab-Israeli war by destroying Arab villages and further reducing the Palestinian population. By April 1949, more than 500 villages and 10 cities were captured by the Israelis. 
over 750,000 Palestinians were expelled from their homes, and over 13,000 Palestinians had been killed. Even then, the Nakba did not end. Today, Israel occupies the whole of historical Palestine. Israelis continue to build illegal settlements on occupied Palestinian territories. Palestinians in the West Bank live under military law, which subjects them to checkpoints, curfews, and arbitrary arrests. Palestinians in Gaza live under a blockade imposed by Israel. Gaza is set to become unlivable by 2020. Palestinians today continue to demand their right to return to their homes. For them, the Nakba will not end until this right is granted. That was uh, an Al Jazeera piece. Al Jazeera is a Qatari news organization. I like going to that uh, because it has a different perspective than Western news agencies. I also like going to Wyan, that's an Indian news agency. And I'm mentioning this because I've had many of the people in the live chat and people that communicate with me say, well, help us find the source materials. Al Jazeera is great. If you haven't heard of it, please check it out. Let's not be afraid of um, alternative views because we're truth-seeking media. Hey, that's how you find the truth. You know, if you just take it, you know, hook, line, and sinker from one source, uh, you're a fish. But if you take the time to broaden out the scope of your research, you'll be able to intuit what's going on much more easily. Now, I'm, I'm doing this today because I had a really interesting conversation with someone I respect very much, who's an American citizen, who's 10 years younger than me, he's a friend of mine, and he called me up and he said to me, he goes, what's this going on between the Israelis and the Pakistanis? You know, and I said to him, what? Did you just say Pakistanis? He said, yeah. I said, it's Palestinians. He goes, what? So it occurred to me, because this is a very intelligent friend of mine, that there seems to be some gaps in knowledge about what's going on here. So we're playing a little bit of history so we get focused on the depth and length of this crisis. This didn't just jump up yesterday. This is 1948 we're talking about, the formation of the state of Israel. And uh, there's a lot of talk in the live chats about Jews, Jews, the Jews or as they say laughingly on one of my favorite movies, blame it on the Jews. Okay, let's get this really clear. The people that formed the state of Israel were cultural Jews. They were not religious Jews. Zionism. Tanner, are you aware that there's Palestinians, or did you think these were Pakistanis also? I'm just curious. No, I, I guess I don't I don't necessarily know the groups, but I did know the difference between Pakistan and Palestinians. Did you know this history that we just had about the Nakba? Have you ever seen anything like that before? Um, not in the detail, but I knew that this has been a battle for a long time. I knew that this just didn't pop out of nowhere. Well, let's just talk about what happened during the Nakba. During the Nakba, cultural Jews, some would call them anti-Jews, slaughtered. Palestinians, not that the Palestinians weren't slaughtering cultural Jews. I mean, this was a back-and-forth deal. When ended up, this was the culmination of the previous many decades of Jewish immigration 
into Palestine. And then when it started out, you know, the indigenous population thought, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll sell you the land. But when they figured out that the Jews that were coming were intending to buy up all the land and make their own country there, oh, they stopped. And then, then the conflict started, and that conflict had reversed hundreds of years of peaceful coexistence. And these were these cultural Jews coming out of Europe, Zionists, Zionism. And there was back and forth. I mean, I'm not saying just one group was brutal. These people were brutal from the start. But there's a notion in the Jewish community, like for my generation, that Jewish people are all good and Palestinian people are all bad. And if you go back and look at this history in 48, there was atrocities committed precisely to move the Palestinian people off their land through fear. When this war broke out, and I'm going to take a little bit of an anti-position to this Al Jazeera piece that said that the uh, Jewish armies were, you know, better armed, better trained. And they were not. It was a ragtag group of Holocaust survivors that barely had any weapons, and they were fighting a ragtag group of Arab countries, and they barely had any weapons because they had been subjects of both the Ottoman Empire and then the British Empire, and neither empire wanted the indigenous populations of the Arab countries to be well-armed because they were occupied first by the Ottomans and then by the British. So neither of these groups really had what you'd call an effective fighting force from the perspective of the armies of that time, which was like the U.S. Army and the Russian Army, didn't have it. That war, that war for what they call from the Israeli perspective, the war for independence, and from the Palestinian perspective, the Nakba, Israel started with 29,000 fighters, and the uh, uh, Arabs, uh, the Arab armies totaled about 26,000. They were similarly armed. Uh, they were similarly competent and incompetent. But the Jews had just come out of the Holocaust. They had nothing to lose. These people were not Jewish in the way, and we're going to see this throughout the podcast today, they were not Jewish in the way people think about Jews. And I'm going to say why. They were Zionists. Well, people need to get this idea about Zionism, really figure it out, and distinguish it from Judaism, because they're two completely different and actually opposed ideologies. Zionism is Marxism. Zionism is Marxism. The Jews that were the backbone of the Zionist movement were Marxists. Marxists. And what is the fundamental cornerstone of Marxism? Religion is the opiate of the masses. There is no God. Marxism is a materialist philosophy. Judaism is a spiritual philosophy, and to be a Jew, you must believe in God. To be a Marxist, you have to believe that the belief in God is a scam. These two groups hate each other. Hate. So these are Jewish people that rejected being Jewish and became Zionists. In other words, Marxists. Marxists. Do you get what I'm saying? They're not Jews. The religious Jews came many decades later. The people that fought 
the Arab armies in 48 were children of the Holocaust that had rejected faith in God. Because after all, how could God allow there to be a Holocaust? That for them was proof that there was no God. I grew up with people like that. That's my background. So I know exactly what they were thinking. They maybe kept some of the trappings of cultural Judaism because cultural artifacts and cultural rituals are quite resilient over time. But they were not believers in God. They were not. And just to make this uh, really clear, they saw themselves as revolutionaries. When Israel was formed in 48, there was two primary groups in the government that formed the first parliament. One was called the Maypai, M-A-P-A-I, and the other was the Maypam. The Maypai advocated a pro-Western foreign policy, but they were Marxists. The Maypam were Marxists that sought to align themselves with the Soviet Union. In fact, there were groups that were fighters. One was called the Stern Gang. These were terrorists. The Irgun and the Stern Gang, these were terrorists. These were the dudes that were blowing up those buildings that we saw in the Al Jazeera piece. The Stern Gang sought to make a deal with the Nazis. The Nazis! Others of them were making a deal with the Soviet Union. Why did they want to make a deal with the Nazis? Because they were not Jews. Not Jews. In the first Knesset in 49, the Maypai received 46 seats and formed a coalition government with the Maypam that were trying to cut a deal with the Soviets, had 19 seats. The country started out as a socialist country, an anti-God country. You want to talk about, um, if you want to talk about what it takes to commit an atrocity, you can't believe in God. You can't kill children and women and the defenseless, the elderly, if you believe in God. You can't do that. It's murder. So we can see that in 48, there was people that didn't believe in God that married the indig- murdered. The in- Some of them married also. Interesting Freudian slip. It's called forbidden fruit. But there was an, in- there was an indigenous population of Palestinians that were murdered by people that were Marxists, brutal Marxists, no different than the people that murdered in the Soviet Union or in Cambodia. And now we have Hamas. Well, they might be wrapping themselves in the cloth of Islam, but come on, killing the defenseless? Nah. Come on. So we see that there is a a misunderstanding about how this nation of Israel was formed. We're going to keep talking about that. But, you know, what I learned from Royce um, the first time I talked to him, which I'd never thought of, he said to me that Israel was the the linchpin of globalism. I never thought about it before. But I was pre-prepared in my academic training to quickly uptake that because I'm anti-globalist. I had to move through my own judgments about Israel, which we'll be talking about. And what we have now is a small group of people that want to question what's going on, but really everybody is coming together, coming together. 
All over the world, people are right now united. All these people that hate each other, everybody's coming together. Because why not? A butchery. Everybody can get on that, that team opposing that. Let's listen to President Biden and a speech he gave just a couple of days ago about this issue. President Joe Biden is at a roundtable with Jewish community leaders speaking more about the terror attack and the growing threat of anti-Semitism here and abroad. We'll say thank you. Thank you to all of you in this room. You've not only cared, but you've, uh, you've been breaking your neck the last couple of years to deal with this overall issue of anti-Semitism. And I know many of you are personally impacted by what's happened in Israel. There are thousands of dual citizens, maybe some of your relatives that are there. And Doug, I want to thank you for all the work you've done on behalf of our administration to combat anti-Semitism. <clears throat> and uh, I apologize. I've been on the phone around the clock with our friends around the world, quite frankly, discussing what's going on in Israel. And, uh, and uh, I want you to know that uh, I want to thank you as well for uh, all of you as well for working, uh, the work you're doing to bring comfort and uh, in this moment of grief for those of you who are grieving as well. And, uh, and you'll read this weekend in synagogue, the Torah teaches us that God made stars to, quote, give light on the earth and separate light from darkness. Give light on the earth and separate light from darkness. You know, uh, it's been hard to find that light during the darkness of these past few days. Uh, when terrorist groups like Hamas uh, brought not only terror, but sheer evil, sheer evil to the world, evil that echoes the worst and matches, in some cases, exceeds the worst atrocities of ISIS. More than 1,000 civilians slaughtered in Israel. By the way, I've been speaking with a number of Israeli leaders, a number of leaders around the world, leaders in the region as well. And, uh, you know, uh, among those who have been victimized this evil, who have been, who've been killed, are at least 22 American citizens. This attack uh, was uh, a campaign of pure cruelty. Not, not just hate, but cruelty against the Jewish people. And I would argue it's the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust. The deadliest day since the Holocaust. One of the worst chapters in human history that remind us all that, that expression I learned from my dad early on, silence is complicity. I'm not, I mean, silence is complicity. It really is. And I want you to know, I think you've already figured it out, I refuse to be silent. I know you refuse to be silent as well. You all, I know you're here with my senior staff. You all represent a voice that America has to hear. America can't be silent. You know, uh, we not only reject terrorism, but uh, it goes beyond that. It goes beyond rejecting terrorism. You know, I spoke with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu for I don't know how many times, but this, again this morning. And uh, already we're, uh, 
We're surging additional military assistance to the Israeli Defense Force, including ammunition, interceptors to replenish the Iron Dome, and we've moved the U.S. carrier fleet to the eastern Mediterranean, and we're sending more fighter jets there in that region. And made it clear, made it clear to the Iranians, be careful. We want to make it real clear, we're working on every aspect of the hostage crisis in Israel, including deploying experts to advise and assist with recovery efforts. Now, the press is going to shout to me, and many of you are, that, you know, what are you doing to bring these, get these folks home? If I told you, I wouldn't be able to get them home. Folks, there's a lot we're doing, a lot we're doing. I have not given up hope of bringing these folks home. But the idea that I'm going to stand here before you and tell you what I'm doing is bizarre. So I hope you understand how bizarre I think it would be to try to answer that question. In the days ahead, we're going to continue to work closely with our partners in Israel and around the world to ensure Israel has what it needs to defend its citizens and cities and to respond to these attacks. As I said yesterday, my commitment to Israel's security and the safety of the Jewish people is unshakable. The United States has Israel's back, and I have yours as well, both at home and abroad. You know, you can see the pain in some of your faces I walked into this room. You okay, kiddo? Well, your fear for family, friends back in Israel, you worry about kids being targeted in school, about, uh, about going about their daily lives. Uh, you hurt uh, by the downplaying of Hamas's atrocities and blaming Israel. This is unconscionable. And I've asked members of my team, including Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas and Attorney General Garland, to work intensively with our Jewish community partners, so, so many of you here, to set up security around Jewish life in America, identify, prevent, and disrupt emerging threats that occur. You know, we're also going to continue to condemn and combat anti-Semitism at every single turn, at every turn. You know, the past few days have been a solemn reminder that hate never goes away. If the hold on a second, I used to, I used to think you could defeat hate, that you could make it, 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 all it does is go underground. It just goes underground, it doesn't go away. It only hides until it's given a little oxygen, a little bit of oxygen. And that's why I've secured the largest ever increase in funding for physical security for nonprofits, including synagogues, Jewish community centers, Jewish day schools. And in May, we released the first ever national strategy to counter anti-Semitism. With the input from many of you in this room, many of you in this room helped write that. It's the most ambitious, comprehensive effort to combat anti-Semitism in American history, in all of American history. And we're aggressively implementing it. But, but we must all do our part and forcefully speak out against anti-Semitism and push back against the attempts to deny or distort the facts. To make clear, there is no place for hate in America. Okay, that's good. Not against Thank Jews, you. not against... Okay. Uh, come together. We're all coming together. What are we coming together about? Well, we've got this great event, the Holocaust, anti-Semitism. Uh, I've experienced anti-Semitism a couple times in my entire life until I got involved in the Republican Party of Minnesota, where I got besieged by it, up close and personal in my face. Yes, there is anti-Semitism. But people not liking me because I'm Jewish, 
speaking against me because I'm Jewish. You know, who cares? I'll tell you what anti-Semitism is. Anti-Semitism is people killing you because you're Jewish. And I also want to point out, these Palestinians, uh, it could have been a Martian, could have been black, white, red, green, yellow. Somebody comes in your house, beats you to death or an inch of you, within an inch of your life, throws you out in the street, kills your kids and rips your wife, takes all your shit away from you. Hey, it won't matter who they are. They could be Jewish, Catholic, Armenian, Russian. It doesn't matter. There's going to be hatred. And I'm saying to you, the people that started this Nakba were not Jewish. They were Zionist. Let's get a distinction laid down here. There's Zionism and there's Judaism. And I'm going to show more examples of what this means during the rest of this podcast. Because let us not use the Jewish people in some kind of globalist game. But I do want to tell you how close this is to me and why we are coming together. I'm going to read you something. This is how close this is in a small community. I was there at the festival. There were rockets, so people got nervous and everyone started to leave. We drove towards the main road where we saw many cars standing in what looked like a traffic jam. At the end, there were policemen and soldiers forming a roadblock and blocking the road. This was not a police checkpoint. These were terrorist impersonators. They waited until there were a lot of people standing in traffic. Then they pulled out a machine gun and started spraying the cars with bullets. At least 300 people died. What they say on the news is wrong. We were in the last car, so we threw her into reverse. We took two bullets to the windshield. A bullet penetrated Lior in the shoulder, and I was injured by broken glass because they, you know, they shot the windshield. We managed to get away from them with the car barely working. We opened her up wide, and Lior told me, I've served here. Let's go to the military base Gaza Division. Driving towards the division's base, we were sure that we would be safe there. But they, the terrorists, had already raided the base that night and killed all the soldiers of the base in their beds. By then, they had already taken over the base. When we arrived at the gate, the car was broken. I saw at the gate's entrance what I was sure were soldiers, but actually it was 13 terrorists standing ready in crouched positions with AK-47s and M-16s, looking at us from a range of about 20 meters, and then they started spraying the hail out of our car. We were shot all over. All the doors were full of holes. A bullet hit me in the head and tore part of my head off. Evyatar took a bullet in the pelvis, Lior to the soldier, to the shoulder. We were all covered in blood. They threw a grenade at us, and suddenly I couldn't hear anything. I was looking to the right, looking to the left, and shouting, Lior, get out, get out. I grabbed Lior and got out of the car, and we started running, and they kept shooting at us. I heard the bullets passing near my head and kept taking shots near my legs. I still have shrapnel in my legs from those bullets. We ran and saw a fence of the base. It was about three meters high. We jumped over it and threw the barbed wire, and my hands were all cut up. They kept shooting at us, but not a single bullet hit us. They didn't manage to hit us somehow. In other words, a miracle. We kept running and hid there in a sniper's bunker. We were there for about three to four hours without water 
bleeding. I made myself a tourniquet. Lior also made a tourniquet. We were sure the rest were already dead behind us. We didn't look back. Then a team of Shayatet 13, that's Israel's Navy SEALs, arrived at the base, and a real war started, with some additional 30, 40 soldiers being killed. I heard their screams of death. They were shooting rocket-propelled grenades at each other. We were right in the middle of a war. When we finally went out to them, we were afraid that our soldiers would shoot us because we looked like terrorists with shirts wrapped around our heads. We left with our hands up. I told them not to shoot, that we were Israeli. They told us to lie on the floor, and they questioned us, checking that we were Israelis. I told them our names and that we were wounded. At the end, a helicopter came to rescue some wounded soldiers. I grabbed the soldier by the hands and looked him in the eyes and said, My brother, I have a little girl at home and a family. You are taking me with you on that helicopter. The soldier looked at me and told me, Yala, yala, which means come on. So we started to cooperate, lifting injured soldiers into the helicopter. Lior helped by lifting a stretcher into the helicopter. We tried to save as many people as possible. People were screaming to hold on tight and don't die in my hands. It was like a movie. It's a very small community. I'm kind of shivering all over reading this to you. Because as an American, uh, not that far away from it, really. I have family on the West Bank. Um, A lot of us do. But we're coming together. Let's listen to Chuck Schumer when he criticizes China and Hamas. Meantime, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer met with Chinese President Xi Jinping yesterday. It was part of a visit by six senators looking to improve relations between the U.S. and China. During the meeting, Schumer addressed China's initial statement on the Hamas attacks, which only called for restraint. Senior foreign correspondent Elizabeth Palmer is joining us now to discuss the visit. So, Liz, I'll just ask you sort of off the bat, what is China's official response now to the attack by uh, Hamas on Israel? Well, the initial one that you mentioned there came on Saturday, and it called for an immediate ceasefire and then went on to say it supported a two-state solution that included an independent state of Palestine, which, you have to admit, looks vanishingly, tragically remote at the moment. And crucially, it did not condemn Hamas as the aggressor or its attacks on civilians. Now, at the time, Senator Chuck Schumer was, as you said, heading a bipartisan delegation of senators to talk to Chinese officials, mainly about trade. Uh, But he just couldn't ignore the fence-sitting of that (laughs) statement, and he spoke up. So, you know, the coverage has been that, yes, he spoke to Xi Jinping, but do we know what he said? Well, it began with comments to China's foreign minister, Wang Yi. And to him, he said that he was disappointed China had not condemned the attack on Israel. Later on, he did have a meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping face-to-face, which in itself is pretty remarkable. Mm -hmm. And Schumer brought the issue up again there, politely but firmly. He urged Xi and the Chinese people to stand with Israelis. Now, uh, she may have Okay, that's good. We don't know that so this is CBS News. This entire thing is propaganda. And they're either dumb or they're just propagandists. I mean, I don't know. I, I can't get in their heads. China 
since Mao Zedong in 1949, has followed a very simple policy. They don't take sides in foreign issues. They don't do it. And that has developed over time, and I'm going to tell you why they don't do it. They want to make money from both sides. The Chinese are in it for the cash. They're not going to take a side. They're not going to piss anybody off. They're going to go right down the center of the road. They're calling for a ceasefire. They're calling for a two-state solution. They're calling for a rational resolution of the conflict. But that makes them assholes. Chuck Schumer has been one of the most rabidly anti-China senators. Sending him to meet with Xi Jinping, hey, Xi Jinping received him. That must make me think that makes me think that this is another scam. Because when Schumer talks China, he's the leader of the anti-China group. But there he is, shaking hands. Maybe they're all in it together. They're all on the payroll. I don't know. I don't know. But to say that China is doing something inappropriate or unprecedented, yeah, you can have that opinion personally. But let's not pick out this event like the Chinese have suddenly changed their policy. This has been their policy for 50 years. They try not to take sides because they want cash from both sides. Cash is what they're interested in. All right. And it's Iran time. Another group. Another group. This is what I think it's all about. Tanner, Senator Graham, our favorite senator, Graham. South Carolina, Republican. We've covered him extensively. When war is on the docket, the advocate for the war is Senator Lindsey Graham. Please. Yeah, I've been on the phone. We had a briefing last night. We're beginning to move the assets in the region that would uh, deal with an escalation if one comes. Americans have died at the hands of the Iranians for decades. This is the most recent incident involving dead Americans uh, from a plan hatched by the Ayatollah. They killed our soldiers in Iraq. Uh, the, uh, the militias did. Uh, you have Iranian militias threatening American service members in uh, Syria who, who are helping to keep ISIS from coming back. They have threatened an attack on our soldiers if we continue to help Israel. Um, the Iranians have threatened Israel with an escalation, activating Hezbollah in the north, a two-front war if Israel goes in on the ground. My response is the following. If you kill one American, hurt one American in Syria, the Iranian-backed militias were coming for you. If this war escalates and you try further to destroy the Jewish state, you're going to be out of the oil business. They have fixed targets that are easy to hit. Their entire economy is based on oil production. Knock them out of the oil business. Make them pay a heavy price. Without money, Hezbollah and Hamas, without money in Iran, Hezbollah and Hamas are, are very seriously hurt. How long is the uh, is it going to delay any potential? That's enough aid? of him. You get the idea. He's not alone. We've got lots of neocons in the Republican Party. One that we don't focus enough on, another complete asshole, is Tom Cotton, Senator Tom Cotton. Can you play the piece on uh, Cotton when he talks about Iran, please, Tanner? All right, 10 minutes before the top of the hour. Lawrence is live in Washington. 
Hey, Steve, great interview. A live look at Gaza City as America's bravest ally. Um, continues, I'm sorry, live look at Gaza, Israeli counter-strikes continued just moments ago. That IDF announced that sirens are sounding across central Israel, a very fluid situation across the country. Our next guest knows all about fighting war against terrorism firsthand. GOP Senator Tom Cotton served in Afghanistan and sits on the Senate Armed Services Committee. He joins us now. Senator, I want to talk about this $6 billion um, and the president's speech yesterday. Um, A lot of heart there, so I commend him for that, addressing what's going on in Israel. But he did not address the state's number one sponsor of terrorism, which is Iran. Yeah, Iran is the world's worst state sponsor of terrorism. Hamas wouldn't exist in the scale and the brutality that it does without Iran's support. And, and President Biden just last month freed up $6 billion to Iran to use. Now, it may be the case that it hasn't been released yet or it's being held offshore, but that obviously emboldened Iran that America would pay ransom for five American hostages. And it freed up $6 billion of their own money to continue to support groups like Hamas and Hezbollah. And, you know, they spent the weekend saying how not a penny of that money has been spent. Well, that's great news. That means that we can refreeze the money and not send it to Iran. I'm very worried that they refuse to answer that simple question, that it suggests that, in fact, they can't plan to go forward with that foolish decision and allow Iran to access that $6 billion, just like they're allowing Iran to ship tens of billions of dollars worth of oil by not enforcing sanctions. All that money is doing is fueling Iran's campaign of terror across the region. What what is the holdup on freezing the money? Yeah, I can't imagine why they're refusing to say they're going to freeze it now unless they simply don't want to. They want to continue with the failed Obama-Biden policy of conciliating with Iran, of appeasing Iran, of trying to elevate Iran to achieve some kind of false balance in the Middle East between Iran on the one hand and Israel and its Arab friends on the other hand. What we need right now is strength and resolution. We need to stand by Israel and we need to make it clear to Iran and Hezbollah and Hamas that we will not tolerate this kind of atrocity that we've seen in Israel. Senator, we're looking at live uh, footage right now in Gaza City and the shelling that's going on. And, And there's been this effort and you serve, you know what happens at war, but you already see it in some of the media and you see some of it in liberal publications to paint Israel as the enemy and the bullies. Um, can you explain to us the goal of Hamas from a propaganda standpoint? Well, well Hamas's very charter says it's dedicated to the destruction of Israel and the death of Jews. Look what happened over the weekend. Babies beheaded, women raped and mutilated in the streets, families burned alive to terrorize Israel. And Hamas is not just a terrorist group, it's also a a governing entity that purports to govern Gaza, which is larger than some sovereign nations, which has two million people. Mm -hmm. What Israel has to do is what we did to Imperial Japan or Nazi Germany after Pearl Harbor. It has to completely destroy Hamas as a terrorist group, as a governing entity, and as a social movement. Anything less will leave Israel exposed in the future to exactly this kind of brutal atrocity. It'll also signal that if we don't back up Israel in their campaign to destroy Hamas, signal even more to Iran and its proxies to say nothing of China and Russia that the United States is not strong and resolute in the defense of our friends and our own citizens since we had more than a dozen Americans killed and a couple dozen apparently are missing or held hostage. Senator, I only got about 15 seconds. At what point should America's 
armed forces be involved in this conflict? Well, Israel always wants to fight its own wars, but we should provide them every support they need, not just in missiles and rockets and other munitions, but mission planning and intelligence and so forth. <laughs> we also may need American forces to help liberate our citizens. Those are our responsibility. They're not Israel's responsibility. They're America's responsibility. Yeah, we can't have another Kayla Mueller situation. Senator, Absolutely. thanks so much for joining the program. I'll send it over Thank to you, you Steve. Tanner. Thank you. That's Senator Tom Cotton uh, on the Republican side of the Uni Party. Neocon extraordinaire, never saw war he didn't want to get involved in. Ex-military. Hey, we got a lot of ex-military. If you're ex-military, you could have a tremendous amount of sacred honor, and God bless you if you do. You'd be ex-military and be in it for the money like a mercenary and support this unfettered expansion of empire. And empire, we are the American empire, extinguishes self-governance. Self-governance on the one hand and empire on the other are juxtaposed and in contradiction. Can't have both. Got to choose one. You got to make it. We, the American people, got to choose one. We got to make a decision and live with our decision. And for those of us that are watching that want to choose empire, that will be called subjugation because empires do not, in the long run, support the freedom of their citizens. They can't. After all, it takes a lot of money to run an empire. A lot. So here we have Schumer, Cotton, and a chorus of assholes talking about this event. They're talking about Iran. Iran, which on September 10th, if you remember the last podcast, Mossad Director David Barnea warned Iran's leaders, this is a month before this event, that they would pay a direct price if Israelis or Jews are harmed in what he said was an ongoing, significantly stepped-up, state-organized Iranian terror effort worldwide. Let me read you exactly what he said, and you can go find Barnea doing this online on YouTube. If you understand Hebrew, it'll make perfect sense to you. Quote, the time has come to exact a price from Iran in a different way. Harming Israelis and Jews in any way, by proxy, by Iranians, or by Iranian weapons smuggled into Israel will lead to activity against the Iranians who sent the terrorists and also against the decision makers from the ground operators to the commanders who approved the operation to the highest echelon. And I mean that, he said. He continued, these prices will be exacted with great precision in the depths of Iran, in the heart of Tehran. The Iranian regime no longer has room for denial, and above all, it no longer has immunity. To those who have decided to dispatch terror cells, be sure that we will get to you and that justice will be done and seen to be done. Okay. So let us not trouble ourselves today whether or not the Mossad uh, was incompetent by allowing this attack or why speculate about things we cannot know the answer to? Let's look at the facts. The drums are pounding about Iran. They're going to pound louder and louder. Right after the attack, Hamas came out and thanked the Iranian leadership for supporting them. And then a day or a couple days later, the Iranians said, Whoa, we got nothing to do with this. Our name is Paul, and it's between you all. In other words, you know, they're trying to get off on this deal. And then, of course, the Biden administration came out yesterday and said, 
there's no evidence that Iran was involved in this attack. I mean, you know, I'm not dumb. I was born at night, but not last night. Hamas and Hezbollah are on the Iranian payroll. Fact. Iran is on the Chinese payroll. If China withdrew its support from Iran and the United States withdrew its support from Israel, this war, this war would be over right away. Just like if the United States withdrew its support from Ukraine and China withdrew its support of Russia, that war would be over. What we've got here is two hegemons, China and the United States, fighting proxy wars, proxy wars throughout Eurasia. Where is that going to take us? Well, I just got a text while we were on here from somebody that I know who's pretty wired. And here's what he said to me. In all seriousness, excuse me, let me try again. Getting excited. In all seriousness, keep your head on a swivel and your firearm in condition one at all times right now. As you are well aware, retired and active special ops forces are proclaiming that a firestorm is coming. That's to us here in the United States of America. This is a world war we're in now. I know many of us don't want to come to grips with that. I would be one of them, Professor Penn. I personally don't want to come to grips with my long life of prosperity and plenty and peace has come to an end. But in fact, it has come to an end. And here we are, the American people, on the verge of yet a second theater of world war that we're all in. We've come together. Everybody's going to support this. President Biden is packaging the Ukraine relief with the uh, Israeli relief in the same package, the same spending bill, $100 billion. They're rushing to get the Republican caucus put together and choose a Speaker of the House so they can go through with the legislation to fund these wars. Fund with what? We're $33 trillion in debt. We're $33 trillion in debt. And of course, as I said, when Congressman Emmer from CD6 said these were the greatest cuts in American political history when they did the debt ceiling bill, and I read the bill and it said, well, special military operations are excluded. Hey, these people can run the tab up $10 trillion between now and January 1st, 2025, when there's going to be accounting. We're bankrupt. We're in bankruptcy. Let's play this piece from CBS News on bankruptcy. Struggling retailer Bed Bath & Beyond is going out of business, putting thousands of jobs in jeopardy, marking the end of an era for a store that became one-stop shopping for millions of loyal customers. CBS's Roxana Saberi reports the big box store is the latest casualty of the changing retail landscape. It's lights out at Bed Bath & Beyond. Filing for bankruptcy this weekend, the retail giant says it plans to close its 360 stores and 120 bye-bye baby locations, putting around 14,000 jobs at risk. I'm so sorry that they're going out of business. In its Chapter 11 filing, the company acknowledged it was slow to embrace and adopt the e-commerce boom, falling behind competitors like Target, Walmart and Amazon. 
they really failed to adapt to what the consumer wanted. Retail analyst Neil Saunders. What do you think consumers wanted? They wanted Bed Bath & Beyond to compete better on price, and they wanted a much more multi-channel experience where they could do things like buy online and pick up in store. Founded in 1971 to compete with the home goods sections of department stores, Bed Bath & Beyond became known for its rows upon rows of bed sheets, towels and kitchen gadgets, and for its popular 20% off coupons. We're going to try to use every one of our coupons. Does Bed Bath & Beyond's demise signal something larger? Its bankruptcy does signify that the retail environment and the consumer economy are very challenging at the moment. Gift cards are still good until May 8th, and you have until Wednesday to use those coupons. After that, all sales are final. The company says another provider will take over its bridal and baby registries. Nora? Roxana Saberi, thank you very much. Thank you, Tanner. Commercial Chapter 11 bankruptcies have soared 61% year-over-year to 4,553 failures year-to-date in 2023. As you know, Professor Penn's a small businessman, small business owner, small business person. Let's not be uh, gender specific, specific, because if you're a woman and you own a business, you're in the same stew pot with Professor Penn. This was the fastest interest rate. You know, this is a more propaganda than BS. They're not going out of business because they don't have e-commerce. That that's a complete BS story. They're going out of business because the Fed has let loose the fastest increase of interest rate in the history of the country. And why are they doing that? Because inflation is running rampant, rampant. Inflation is a, inflation is about the money supply. We are deficit spending $2 trillion to $2.5 trillion this year and every year. In other words, what's coming in and what's going out, there's a gap by $2 trillion. So what does our government do in its wisdom? Instead of balancing the budget, which I have to do, which you have to do, which Tanner has to do, we got to live within our means. No, we're going to have guns and butter at the same time. We're going to have an empire, and everybody's going to go to the mall and shop and act like everything's okay. So they are borrowing money or just monetizing debt, just printing money, the money supply expands, and we have inflation. They don't tell you what their strategy is. Their strategy is just to bankrupt the entire middle market, destroy the middle class, take all the money away from all the middle people, leave everybody poor, a handful of oligarchs that are in control of everything, and they're going to control the inflation simply by destroying companies and taking their assets away from them. That's their plan. Kind of an evil plan. It's why people hate bankers. It's why my grandfather, when I bought my first house in 1981, and the interest rate was, I think, 18%, he walked in and he said, boy, this is very impressive, a young man like you, to have uh, uh, accumulated enough money to buy this house. What'd you pay for it? I said, well, the house is 83 grand, but I put 15 grand down. I borrowed the rest. He got up and walked out of the house. I mean, he had lived through the Depression. He thought I was out of my mind, and he was correct. So we're broke, and interest rates are not done going up. They're going to break everybody here. That's the plan. Let's listen to Rick Santelli, who's a very noted analyst, um, 
talking about interest rates on CNBC. There he is. Let's get more rates are going this year. All the way from the Windy City, the one and only Rick Santelli joins us here. Clap him in. Clap him in. There we go. Clap him in. Royalty. Can you join us with this world-famous easel, by the way? Well, I do apologize. I, I don't have airport. all my equipment, and I couldn't do a really pretty chart. But before we get to that, I'd like to say a few things. Mm. I personally always find anniversary dates very key, and I can't help thinking about September of 81 when we had the all-time high closing yield just shy of 16%. So what I'm talking about here might be dancing between the raindrops. You never want to go against a market that is burning to the upside, but you might want to give it a pause if it looks like it's going to back away a bit. But in the grand scheme of things, I think rates are going higher. So let's go to the charts. Like I said, not my best work, but high, low, perpendicular midpoint. We always pay attention to those, especially when one of those points is the all-time low closing yield at a half of 1%. So you take the high, you take the low, you connect it, you find that midpoint, you draw a perpendicular line. And what you find is it just keeps you on the straight and narrow. Those are very key. The more important the spike levels are, whether it's a key high or key bottom, those make it work that much better. Now, this chart is really off scale. Remember, when you're doing these charts, you got to use logarithmic paper. This is just a rough gauge, but there's your near 16%, SEP and 81 for your anniversary date. And the whole point of this chart is, is that we have a lot of potential room to run to the upside. So if somebody asked me and held a gun to my head and said, listen, the worst case scenario, where Treasury rate's going to go 10-year. I'd say in the next seven years, you should be able to see 13 and a half, 14 percent. Yes. Now, I'm not saying okay, we that's there, good. But I really. So what Rick Santelli is telling us is that uh, business will be borrowing at about 15, 16 percent. That means everybody's going bankrupt. That's in the middle market. They're going bankrupt everybody. If we, as the American people, a nation of shopkeepers, that's what it was supposed to be. The people like Professor Penn that own businesses and are self-governing, self-employed, oh, that's an affront to these people. They want to take everything away from Professor Penn, from Free, Free People Radio, from Royce White. So I'm just going to make an appeal. I didn't plan to do this, but I'm going to say we need your support. They're not going to let us stay on air. They're going to break us. So we need, and I am asking you, to go to the freepeopleradio.com website and donate and support and subscribe to this station. We're not going to make it otherwise, and neither are you. Self-governance, precinctstrategy.com, become a delegate. This is not happening by accident. This is policy. Policy, as I said, empire, self-governance. Make a decision and live with your decision. You want to be a subject of an empire? Stay at home, watching the broadcast for entertainment. And when they take away everything you have, you've made a decision. If you want to be free and you want to live in the home of the brave, become a delegate and let's get rid of these evil people that are out to make us into debt slaves. And for what? For empire. Got a war in the Ukraine. Now we got a war in the Middle East. Hey, Pakistan and India is next, and then we got Taiwan. And guess what? We're going to pay for it by giving the empire all of our energy. Because what is money after all? A piece of paper? It represents my energy and my creativity. And they want all of it 
like I'm a battery or empire, a battery, a copper top, just like on the matrix. See, Tanner, you got to go back and watch the matrix. You know, I mean, really it's all there. I'll have to play it on a subsequent podcast. Our national debt, Congressman Emmer, just increased another half a trillion dollars in 20 days because, hey, war, 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 war. Since that debt ceiling bill was passed, the greatest cuts in American history, the cover story, the truth, we've run the debt up a trillion and a half dollars in three and a half months. That's right, a trillion and a half dollars in three and a half months. And the people that get up in front of the Congress and scream about this as a threat, they're sexual deviants, they're filled with hubris and anger, they're the worst people in the world. Let's leave this segment about bankruptcy and play this again, because it's so noteworthy, Matt Gates on the debt. Mr. Speaker, my friend from Oklahoma says that my colleagues and I who don't support Kevin McCarthy would plunge the House and the country into chaos. Chaos is Speaker McCarthy. Chaos is somebody who we cannot trust with their word. The one thing that the White House, House Democrats, and many of us on the conservative side of the Republican caucus would argue is that the thing we have in common, Kevin McCarthy said something to all of us at one point or another that he didn't really mean and never intended to live up to. I don't think voting against Kevin McCarthy is chaos. I think 33 trillion in debt is chaos. I think that facing a $2.2 trillion annual deficit is chaos. I think that not passing single subject spending bills is chaos. I think the fact that we have been governed in this country since the mid 90s by continuing resolution and omnibus is chaos. That's and the good, way to live That's good. So, you know, he's a sexual deviant, sleeping with underage girls, doing drugs, snorting drugs, and uh, the whole thing was because he hated Kevin McCarthy. That's what the Uni Party is telling us. Listen to what the man said. Listen to the words that are coming out of his mouth. Do not allow the Uni Party to discredit the truth. We're in chaos. But there's still peace. There's still the hope for peace. I'm of the Jewish tradition, the real peaceful tradition. People of the book, the Torah, all its paths are paths of peace. And I've been saying that the people that started Israel were Marxists. And we know what Marxists have done around the world. And they were Marxists. It's not up for dispute. Not like there's two sides of this one. We know who they were. We know what their names are. In fact, some of them subsequently became the prime ministers of Israel. Menachem Begin. For example, Shamir, these people were terrorists. And if you can kill and assassinate the innocent, you do not believe in God. So let's listen to some of the people who believe in God, what they have to say about Israel. And guess who they are? They're the real Jews. Play this first one here. 
Orthodox Jews protest against Israel. Suffering in Turkey and Syria with this terrible earthquake, such sorrow and pain, and there has to be added pain that they're oppressing the Palestinian people with the expansion of settlements. This is a created Nakba, uh, 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 a created the catastrophe, and we as Jews are crying about this and telling the world that our religion as Judaism does not permit to occupy or to steal, to have the state of Israel is against our Jewish religion. And here they are protesting, holding the Palestinian flag, condemn the aggression in Al-Aqsa. Look at that. Look at that. Those are the real Jewish people. Those are the real Jewish people. Those are the people I come from. The real Jewish people, the people that seek peace, that see their role as tikkun olam, that God left the world unfinished and is waiting for we, the people, to finish the work of creation and create a heaven here on earth, that God gives us free will to create a heaven or a hell. And it's up to us, us, we, the people, what the outcome is. And I just ask that we, the people, become delegates and endorse candidates that love the American people, that love human well-being, that love the United States of America, that love God, that we could have candidates like that that could change this and bust up this uni party's hold on this country because they're taking us to war. We're in it right now. The shit is going down right now. But it's not too late. It's not too late until the last breath. It's not too late to reverse this process. I'm asking. I am a delegate. I am involved in the Republican Party. For all of its shortcomings, one half the Republican Party is the Uni Party. The other half, hey, we're fighting for America and for faith in God. We're fighting for the well-being of children. We're fighting for a balanced budget. We're fighting to end the empire. And, of course, what do they say? Oh, yeah, the Republican Party's having a civil war. It's divided against itself. Yes, it is. Yes, we are. We are not backing down. We are fighting for our children. I have five of them, and I want them all to live as long as I've lived. My youngest isn't even done with high school. I want a safe and peaceful world. Who are the aggressors? Who benefits from this chaos? Well, China benefits. Hamas benefits, Iran benefits, Israel benefits, and the United States of America benefits. All the leadership of all these big organizations benefit. They're gangsters. And we, me, I, Professor Penn, I have to look around with my head on a swivel when I leave the office today because you know what? There could be terrorism right here in CD5, Minnesota. Unbelievable. Let's look at a little bit more of what real, for those of you that are in the live chat, that are Jew haters, let's distinguish between Zionism and Judaism and Israel. Let's understand there's a difference. And for all the Jewish people that are watching, if you don't believe in God, the best I can say is you're a cultural Jew. Because it says right in the Torah that if you don't believe in God, you're set aside from the nation of Israel. Just that simple. I didn't make it up. You can go look it up. Please, would you play this next piece from this beautiful Jewish man? 
So this is the fact. The fact on the ground is Judaism is subservience to God. Zionism is a transformation to a base nationalism. It is totally contradictory. It is antithetical to this Tower Judaism. The fact is, no matter what the Zionists or all they're going to come with their uh, intimidation or their whatever explanation, the fact is Judaism is, does not accept Zionism. It cannot accept Zionism. In every aspect of Zionism, it's contradictory. Stop right there. It is why is he, he says based on blasphemy? Why? Because the Zionists do not believe in God. The Zionists are Marxists. And that Marxism has continued today into modern Israel. Well, we call it liberalism now. Progressivism. Whatever you want to call it. The words don't mean anything. What matters is they don't believe in God. That's why I said in the last podcast, there are religious Jews around the world. They're not going to say it out loud. They're going to say, God forbid this happens to people. But when they see those paragliders heading towards that rave, which was on a very important Jewish holiday, they're saying to themselves, oh, these people, they're getting judgment. They're not going to say it out loud. They said it to me when I was a little kid in the, in the kitchen with my grandparents who were like this rabbi, and they'd see these kind of killings, and they'd say, my son, be subservient to God. Put all your faith in the Lord. And I did. And this man does also. Let's continue. On blasphemy. Secondly, in its actions, it's, it's, it's totally, it's criminal. You're not allowed to kill a steal. They, when, if, in its um, essence, we're not allowed to have a state. But on top of that, being that they came to Palestine, they created the state by driving the Palestinians from the land. Yes, they started at the beginning buying the land because the Arabs and Muslims knew that the Jews, they just want to buy a piece of land. They didn't believe in their... And, and, the, and the, the furthest thought that, that, that it could be that they want to make, aspire to create their own land. But so they then realize what they're doing, that they want to make their own state, so they stop selling. So then the Zionists came with Der Yassin, Rabbi Beck told me, and those other rabbis, and they cringed when they spoke about Der Yassin, how friendly the Arab and Muslims were. And beyond words, when the, the Zionists came in and, and murdered them, how, you know, how as a Jew, how we felt. So the Jews around, so as a Jew, we cannot accept the murder and the killing and the oppression and, the, and all the other, the subjugation, the everything that's what the Zionists are doing mentally and physically, how every person is, is maimed. Every, if it's not a, a family that doesn't have a member somewhere that was not murdered. This is against our Torah. I bet that's a surprise to some of you. This is how I grew up. Let me just read something to you that he mentioned that those of us that are not historically steeped, maybe even missed a word, he referred to the Deer Yassin. The Deer Yassin massacre took place on April 9, 1948, when around 130 fighters from the Zionist paramilitary groups, that means Marxist, the Irgun, and the Stern Gang, they actually called them the Stern Gang, the gang. These were the guys that tried to cut a deal with the Nazis killed at least 107 Palestinian Arab villagers, including women and children in Deir Yassin, a village of roughly 600 people near Jerusalem, despite having earlier agreed to a peace pact. Hey, Marxists, you know, the ends justify the means. Hey, make a peace pact, kill the people. Hey, hey, we've seen it many times. We just didn't know that these were the, the Zionists. 
The massacre occurred while Jewish militia sought to relieve the blockade of Jerusalem during the civil war that preceded the end of British rule in Palestine. The village put up stiffer resistance than the Jewish militias were expecting, and they suffered casualties, but it fell after house-to-house fighting. Some of the Palestinian Arab villagers were killed in the course of the battle, while others were massacred by Jewish militias while trying to flee or surrender. A number of Palestinian Arab prisoners were executed, some after being paraded in West Jerusalem, where they were jeered, spat at, stoned, looted, and eventually murdered. This is a violation of the Torah. In addition to the killing and widespread looting, there have been many cases of mutilation and rape. This is by Zionists on Palestinians. Now, I'm not saying that Palestinians weren't raping and mutilating Jews. They were, or Zionists, or anti-Jews. The words don't mean a lot. What means is, do you believe in God or do you not believe in God? That's what matters. Because if you believe in God, you're self-governing. If you don't believe in God, you believe in a state that governs you. Get it? Now, this man that I was showing you is very famous. He lives in New York City. But I want to show you what's going on in Israel right now today with Israeli Jews. Play this next one. I'm going to have to translate because he's speaking in Hebrew. I am not a Zionist. I am Jewish. I am a Yahud. I'm Jewish. I want to be a true Jew, like we were in the past. We used to live in peace and harmony with the Palestinians, and I want them to come back from where they came from, back to Tel Aviv, back to Haifa. Play it one more time. Okay, let me review in the couple minutes I have left. I'm horrified by these killings. I've barely slept since they've happened. I love the Jewish people. The Jewish people. We are a people apart that have been prepared to pursue tikkun olam the completion of the world, the healing of the world. I've never fit in anywhere my entire life. I've known who I am my entire life. It just never made any sense to me. Because, you know, in peace and prosperity, and everybody's telling me I'm mentally ill, uh, you know, you start to question yourself from time to time. But because I have a stiff neck, I never let them get to me. I've held to what I believe since I've been about 19 years old. When I was 19, I knew I was being prepared for something special. And then, you know, many, many decades later, spent a long time in there going, hey, maybe you're goofy. David, maybe you're goofy. I mean, everybody tells me I'm goofy. I'm not goofy. Turns out I was always on the right track to be here with you to form this community to encourage you to become a delegate and to get involved, to show you that there's a difference between Marxism and Judaism. There is a difference between those who reject the one true God and those who are subservient to the one true God. 
And that doesn't mean I don't sin. I'm horrifyingly bad at some things in my life. But I'm aware of it, and I'm struggling to throw off the yoke of sin that I might serve my God by talking to you and spreading the good word. The good word, the truth that there is a God. And to oppose this secularist education, the progressive education that started in this country in the 1900s, early 1900s. Does this look like it's getting better? So I'm going to say this in closing. Anti-Semites, you're not anti-Semitic. You're anti-Marxist. And so am I. Let us give up the hatred of the people that believe in God and have patience for them because they will discover the good word in time. Because God is not through with them, God is not through with me, and God is not through with any of us. We are living in the most potent time in world history. Let us savor every breath. Let us enjoy the taste of every meal. Let us love the people around us and be kind and pursue peace because that matters to the outcome. Let us remember that creativity is the gift that God has given us. I want to say to my son, who is super creative and just took a beat down by the faithless, let us remember who we are at all times. Let us not be deterred by the machinations of those that hate the Lord and hate the humans. Let us be ennobled by our faith and our love of mankind and our love of this world. And let us remember that creativity is a gift that God has given us, and we can see it in people like Oscar Peterson. So we're going to go out with Oscar. I'm going to remind you that Professor Penn will be on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7.30 p.m. I really enjoy the live chats and the comments and the communication. Thank you, and have a great weekend. Thank you.